0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio.
1: Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film, criticism, show and podcast my name is Lisa Kovacevic. Joining me in the cave tonight are Stuart Richards and guest reviewer Paul Anthony Nelson is back. Hello, welcome.
0: Hello, I'm glad you actually decided to invite me back into the building after
1: last week. <laughs> It went very well, I hear. Um, it's our first meeting though. Um, a cute meet, as you might say, in a rom-com which we will be discussing mm. um, quite shortly. <laughs> <laughs> um, on tonight's show, uh, we three reviewers attempt to not to leave, to attempt not to leave the house, I should say, as we review two new Netflix releases, Rom-Com Set It Up and coming-of-age teen flick Alex Strangelove. And we follow this up with housebound Australian thriller Brothers Nest. Um, but first I, I want to sort of um, give a bit of context to the first uh, film we will be reviewing. Uh, something happened on midnight of December 31st, 1999. Something irreversibly flatlined, and all new Rom-Com ceased being enough. The classic Rom-Com of the 90s was officially dead. No more Julia Roberts running from the altar, no more Meg Ryan running into Tom Hanks's arms, or Drew Barrymore falling over herself in pursuit of love. The naughties had a go with basically anything featuring Ryan Reynolds, or those dude-friendly type rom-coms like Knocked Up, which were basically the same, but with way more dick jokes. Um, while still popular, audiences cried, these aren't the same and apparently Netflix has answered that call with Set It Up which, pardon the pun, takes the classic rom-com setup of the 90s and dishes it up in brightly lit cutesy glory. In Set It Up, two overworked and underpaid assistants come up with a plan to get their bosses off their backs by setting them up with each other. Harper Zoe Deutsch is the 25-year-old assistant to Kirsten Lucy Liu, a former journalist and now editor of an online sports journalism empire. Charlie Glenn Powell is a 28-year-old assistant to the high-strung Rick, played by Tay Diggs, who's work who works in finance. Both bosses are demanding and abrasive, leaving little time for their respective assistants' private lives and work ambitions. Working in the same high-rise building, the two assistants conspire to set their bosses up with each other, a la The Parent Trap, the hope being that if they're in love, they'll have less time and focus on work and be more pleasant to work with genius. Uh, The Netflix original (laughs) Uh, in other words, uh, this was produced by Netflix, is directed by Claire Scanlon whose previous directing credits include NBC's The Office. Um, Stuart, I hold you responsible for this selection (laughs) (laughs) so I therefore insist you kick off the discussion. What do you think of this 90s style rehashing of the rom-coms of old? Should we even be going there in 2018?
2: I'm so sorry.
1: (laughs) You should be. (laughs) This
2: was my suggestion and I was really excited To watch these two films, two Netflix films, which because it meant I didn't have to leave the house. That's right. Which is it's bloody cold at the moment here in Melbourne.
0: (laughs) But that's how they get you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. Before you know
2: it, you're watching an Adam Sandler film.
0: (laughs) Slippery slippery.
2: (laughs) I so I parked myself on the couch on Saturday and, and and you know planning on having a huge binge. And my housemate Claire was pottering around the house and she walked in and she's like, is this film still going? <laughs>
1: and I was like, it has an hour to go. Oh, my God. It was so boring. It was so yeah. tedious, wasn't it? it? I mean,
2: it, obviously what they're trying to do is have a, a very self-conscious, hyper-aware rom-com where all of the conventions are kind of laid out, and there's a bit of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, see what we're doing here. Like the two lead characters openly talk about cute meats. How are they going to create that cute meat of their two bosses?
1: Now, can, can you explain what a cute meat is? Because I actually didn't know till this film. I'd never heard that term, that terminology. It's a, it's a common trope in um, mm. rom coms, but what is it? What's the. the, it's, the-
2: uh, it's just a sort of a a weird or kind of bizarre scenario where the two characters that are going to fall in love kind of just happen to run into each other. Um, And in this film, they get supposedly stuck in a lift uh, where they're forced to interact. um, And usually it does in a way where they kind of irritate the other one or um, there's just something about the way they meet that it's probably not very sexy or not very romantic, but it, the way these two characters meet and kind of interact and get to know each other ends up being romantic. I mean, in this film it's just so constructed, which is kind of ironic because these two lead characters are trying to... Construct this kind of romance between their two bosses, but in turn they fall in love themselves. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's just, <laughs> did not see that coming. Um, and I really wanted to like it because I love cheesy rom coms. I mean, you know, anything with Drew Barrymore from the 90s, like I grew up on that. That was my diet as a teenager. But this is just so self so self aware which i love in theory but it just becomes really corny yeah. in this song I and mean, it's really really cheesy
0: yeah yeah self aware isn't easy to do and that's the mistake a lot of films make these days. Like everybody thinks post-Charlie Kaufman they can be meta and it's like, no, 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 you've got to have a skill for it and you've got to know, you, you can't just show all your machinery and go, still enjoy me. It's like, no, you need to involve us. You need mm. to involve us in flesh and blood characters. Nobody in this film felt like they were from the planet Earth.
1: No, oh. especially the bosses. Was, they was, oh were so shallow and veneer. And, and Tate Dix's character is a psychopath. Yes. Like, who uh, would set yes. anybody
0: psychopath. up with this? Person. It's yeah. it's
1: crazy. And Lucy Liu's character was an attempt at that sort of Devil Wears Prada Meryl Streep character yes. and that just falls so flat. It's just watching her read lines is what it felt like. And she's
0: yeah. so such so, a wonderful actress. Yeah, she's but really underutilised. She's really, so good.
1: Yes. I mean, I think the, this...
2: Uh, uh, what's the um, Miranda Priestley This mm. Miranda Priestley type character... Um, that is so elegant and fashionable, mm. and it's really hard to do that well. A few weeks ago, we discussed Sunday's illness, mm-hmm. and there was a character in that uh, who he just pulls it off, and it's really hard to do. Where the Lucy Liu character, you can just kind of see what they're doing.
1: Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, everything yeah. is a stereotype.
0: If, and the thing everybody forgets about Priestley, Miranda Priestley, is she's great because she was actually based on a real person, oh, and Anna yeah. Wintour. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's just somebody who had mm. experience with this person. And and knew what she was like Mm. and and wrote it accordingly. This is a construct. Everything in this film is a construct. Mm. To the point where when it finished, the thing I could say about it was like it was really beautifully lit. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs)
1: Yeah, which they always are. Rom-coms are always brightly lit with soft lighting. And it and it shows on their their promo poster as well. It's like three strips of faces in situ smiling in brightly lit places. You can't see the background because it's all washed out. It's so yeah, it just killed me. 45 seconds into this film. And I hated it. 40 45 seconds. seconds. I could tell what it was. My partner and I just looked at each other and go, Oh my god. He was like, I'm out. He left the room. It was horrible. It sent me into an existential crisis. I was like, what am I doing watching this film? I'm wasting my what precious am I weekend. Doing with my life? Oh, I just wasted like nearly two hours on this schlock. It would just it didn't entertain me, it didn't enrich my life. It was horrendous. It was so bad. Interestingly, I cannot find a bad review of this film online. That's right. What, can I on, just say, online. in my
2: defense, yeah. That's why I suggested yeah. it because Twitter was going nuts. nuts. Yes. All of these people were going. It's so charming, and mm. the rom com is back. Yes, it's like, really good not.
0: Lord, Lord if not. this is what the rom com was, send it back to the grave. Well, that's
1: <laughs> right. That's right. I mean, like the gender politics. Like, surely we're we a bit more woke now mm. than these films.
2: Well, I, I I can see once again. You can see the the mechanics, the cogs turning in this film. Mm. They try to have this, and obviously, you can see this coming a mile away. It's not a spoiler. You can see them trying to have these two bosses have a moment where they have character development and it's revealed that they're not as awful as they actually are. But it does in a way where it's just not justified or not felt deeply Mm. in any way because these characters are so two-dimensional. Yes. And even the Zoe uh, Deutsch character, I mean... I sent a, sh- a shot, there's one scene where she's just hanging out at home and she's wearing a hoodie backwards <laughs> oh and she's God. eating all the popcorn and mm, mm. um, <laughs> out of the out of the hood.
1: Oh, that's right. And yeah, I sent yeah. it to my
2: housemate, going like, "This is the highlight of the film so far." Yeah. and she just a uh, messaged back saying, "She's
1: so quirky." Oh, and I was like, "That's what it is. Yeah. She's the quirky girl." Of course, Aww. yeah. She's she's adorable. She's adorable. Yeah, that's what they're going. <laughs> and That's for. what they're doing there. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it has every rom com trope you could possibly imagine. Yeah. But they, like you say, it doesn't. What well, you said, Paul. Like it, it's not self conscious enough where it pokes fun at the genre, um, and people are applauding it and saying oh that's that's it's that's its winning thing though is it that it it, it's it's true to form but I thought no if this was going to be a successful film made in 2018 in a 90s format rom-com, they need to be turning on its head a bit or being a bit self-conscious and playful with it and the only time that they did that which I thought worked is, you know the grand gesture moment where it's like, you know, the Meg Ryan Tom Hanks on top of the Empire State Building grand gesture or the running to the airport in Love Actually or something Um, there's a moment where uh, the main young guy um, has to run to the airport, he breaks up with his model girlfriend, um, has to run to the airport to stop a wedding between his his boss and his um, girlfriend is a friend's boss um, and he's sort of like, out of my way, I've got to get to the airport, you know. <laughs> and he says, the plane's leaving and he looks at his watch she goes... Four hours. Wow, that's that's quite a while. <laughs> and I thought, that's quite funny. You know, that was the only time. And then it sort of cuts to him at a hot dog stand talking to somebody. Um, and you're like, what's happening here? And then he looks at his watch again and he goes, oh, oh, God, time's flying. I've actually got to, you know, and then he was actually late. And I thought, okay, that was kind of funny. But it's mm. again that they'd sort of missed the comic beats more of, of that. It. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. just needed more of that. And the only other thing that I found funny in this film was Titus Burgess, oh, who plays, has this tiny little role. And if anybody knows or is Familiar with the um, the Tina Fey Netflix series, uh, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which is much more excellent quality entertainment than this. Um, uh, he is in that; he plays this wonderful character called T- Titus Andromedon in that. But he plays this um, sort of what's his character? It's like creepy, creepy Tim. Tim. Creepy Tim, that's <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. And they really like let loose there with the yeah. comedy with him, and they they allow him to sort of be free and yeah. funny with it.
2: Yeah. Well, I was just. Um I mean, actually, I mean, it's it's interesting because I was having a look at the type of films that Netflix are putting up, and it's actually a lot of this. Mm. Uh, so Adam Sandler had a four film deal with Netflix, where he's getting paid fifteen, approximately fifteen million dollars per film. What? So it's just this multi movie deal. So I that's
0: think, been extended too.
2: Yeah, and that's yeah. an extension. Wow. So we're kind of mocking this, but. Th- in, I mean, because Netflix are very secretive about their viewing numbers, mm-hmm. mm. uh, what's working, what's not working. We get we get a show like Sensei, which we're thinking is huge, but then it gets axed. Mm. So it's they're very secretive, and it seems like these are the type of films that are being watched more mm. than something like Sunday's Illness, obviously, which shouldn't be a surprise because that's a niche art house film, but.
0: People yeah. are going for the comfort food I think and it's that thing about not leaving the house and they yeah. want something that's like a yeah. comfy I'm, I'm rom challenging. Rom- yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. But it's <laughs> look I will say this I like I think to their credit, I think the actors do give it a go. Like I think they do really they're try. Trying. Yes. And yes. they're battling an awful, awful script and a terrible construction. Yeah. It's funny you mention the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, because Claire Scanlon, the director of this film, has directed numerous episodes oh, has of she? Kimmy Schmidt. So
1: she's her background is comedy. Her yeah. background is great, I, TV comedy. Yeah, yeah, well I just think that the problem here is the source material. That yeah. script is atrocious. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> and so look, like I said, for me, the only good thing about this film was that character of Creepy Tim played by Titus Birch's...
0: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
1: Brothers Nest is the new film from director Clayton Jacobson the follow up to his comic debut feature 2006's Kenny Uh, Clayton Jacobson stars alongside his real life brother Shane Jacobson who had the starring role in Kenny Uh, the film is set almost entirely on one secluded country property, the premise is tight two brothers stake out a house in the middle of nowhere with murder on their minds family bickering escalates as the two make farcical preparations to take out a family member and claim their inheritance, before the whole thing inevitably unravels and plans go awry. Although Kenny star Shane Jacobson has gone on to enjoy a a relatively illustrious acting career since Kenny, it's been 12 years since Brother Clayton has been able to follow up his 2006 directorial debut. Despite Kenny being a huge success, um, Kenny cost only $500,000 to produce and it made $8 million. Not an easy thing to do in Australian cinema. Uh, So I wanted to kick off this discussion by giving a little bit of context to the financing of Brothers Nest, which may well be as compelling as a tale as the film itself. Uh, so Clayton said he spent 11 years languishing in development, hell, working on his follow-up feature to Kenny but failed to get it off the ground. So he sat down and tried to work out an alternative film financing model. Clayton said one of the greatest experiences of making the film Kenny was the regional cinemas which uh, which is where Kenny premiered at a country town called Poo Wong, I believe, for the pun. <laughs> um, Kenny being a film about portaloos. Um, so he looked toward direct financing from independent cinemas across Australia, Um, what they did was they asked for, like, modest amounts of investment. Um, Brothers Nest ended up being shot for less than $2 million in the end, and the arrangement was that independent cinema owners essentially prepay their share of future box office returns before the film is shot, so they pay, like, a small advance on the movie hire, and and in return, um, Shane, Clayton and the production team provide them with a very specific marketing campaign, including trailers that are, like, personalised for each theatre, allowing cinemas a lot more say in how the film film gets marketed to their specific audience. Um, The theatre also receives a lot of autonomy. They decide how long to screen the film for. They get 100% of the ticket price until the advance is paid off and they all get a credit in the film. Um, it's interesting because instead of Sinners being at the end of the process, they're now at the start. Mm. It's a really unique approach and I hope it works for them and allows a new model to support other local filmmakers who, who may be struggling. Clayton said it's a model he hopes will allow him to shoot a film each year. Um, Paul, what did you make of this modest Australian black comedy?
0: Firstly, I mean, good Lord, Is that, that's like an indictment on the Australian film industry, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Like you make a film for half a million, grosses $8 and it tw- takes you 12 years to make your next one. I mean, that's... I mean, like, Andrei Tarkovsky didn't run into that in the Mm. the Soviet system. Like, it is just kind of insane. Yeah. Um... As, as an independent filmmaker myself, that kind of really hurts my heart. But also, from that point of view, I love this system they've got. Mm. I love this idea of, of pre-selling the film to cinemas. I mean, of course, you know, being very recognisable and being the makers of Kenny, they can do that. So it's kind of, it's kind of nice, um, you know, and good for them. But it's something I'd like to hook into myself one day. It's a really great idea. The film itself, look, I... You know, I did enjoy it. It just felt like, I felt, it's very kind of, it felt like kind of warmed over Coen's to a certain extent. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. It's very Coen-esque. Um, it could be Fargo in Australia, but not quite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or an attempt at it, anyhow. And that's how
2: it's been billed as well. It is billed as sort of an Australian Coen brothers film.
0: The, the trouble is, I mean, the, I mean, and this is nothing on the Jacobsons. I mean, it's a very, like, it's a perfectly fine enjoyable film. But there's something, you know, the coen Brothers have this kind of all of their films are seeped with this character and this kind of regional quality and these interesting quirks and and stuff that is just comes straighter to them. And and obviously, you know, nobody can do the coen Brothers as well as the coen brothers. Mm. But I don't know, I, I wanted a little bit more individuality to this. I wanted a little bit more of the Jacobsons and a little less kind of broad strokes. Mm. And as much of it as I enjoyed and there are some wonderful twists in the last half hour. But I just found, yeah, it just felt a little played out to me, sadly.
2: Yeah, I I don't really see the Coen Brothers connection there myself either. I because I think with those films, with their films, we they're character studies, mm. right? So these, there's these usually kind of they're black comedies or they're dark in some way, and then it becomes more it becomes less about what these characters are doing and sort of these bigger more existential questions about what it means to want something or what it means to want something so badly that you'll do something really bad where a lot of their characters are quite awful in mm-hmm. some ways which makes watching them so interesting where i think the the character terry i I thought he could have been explored a little further. Yeah. I think I think his the the characterization there I think needed to be explored further because we have the brother who is presented as just being a bit of a psychopath that is almost enjoying this murder plot. Mm. Where we don't really know Terry how Terry feels about it. Will he kind of agree and go through with this murder plot or will he stop it in some way and Th- the reasons behind sort of his decisions and his thinking isn't explored as much as, as sort of as, as deeper as it could have been. I think it, like towards the end when there is kind of the the ending that kind of mm-hmm. does, it does go there. I, I, I was just kind of, because like, Sarah, the character, actress Sarah Snook appears at mm-hmm. the end and when there's an, inter- there's an interaction between her and Terry and I was just like, is that it? Like mm-hmm. I just needed more oomph. Yes. I think like it it,
1: was building towards something but there wasn't much of a payoff I I do I do I did see the Coen brothers influence but for me it was more in the cinematography and the sound uh the music choices that they made um I felt as though uh Clayton's character who's also the director and I and I really think he is a good director I think he's got a great eye um I think you know this is this is budget filmmaking that didn't look like budget filmmaking. It didn't. No, uh, unlike yeah, it was beautifully made, beautifully shot. Unlike um, what did we review the other week? The sci-fi uh, set in Australia that um, oh, yeah. that looks um, that looks like I suppose it looked like America, but it's set here. I forget. The upgrade. Film. upgrade, upgrade. Thank you. That again was low low budget, and to me it. It probably had i 'd I'd argue it probably had a bigger budget than oh, this definitely. but it looked yeah. it did not look it to me like it yeah. didn 't pull it off the way that this film does, and I think his restraint is really wonderful um, The color palette is beautiful oh. it 's it's a one location uh, film and essentially and and he does it he does it well I think for me, where it falls flat is. The, the comedy did not work. I mean, it's all in the script. And I feel that um, Clayton's character, um, while he's a great director, I don't know that he's a great actor. And I think uh, that character really needed your Steve Bucemi type character yeah, actor yeah. to really flesh that he out wasn't and draw. Scary. The, he wasn't scary at all, and um, he wasn't nuanced enough, and he didn't um, he didn't deliver the, the lines that the way that they needed to be f- to, for laughs. And, or he was playing for laughs, and that was the problem, I think. Actually,
0: mm. yeah. yeah, and I don't think the lines were that great either. That's the thing. It's like I, you've absolutely nailed it. I, I just felt like the comedy in, in this stuff was so prosaic. It's like, mm. yeah, exactly. Oh, you you should write Christmas cards for Hallmark. It's like, well, that's two steps too many for that line you know yeah. you should have landed that faster and harder yeah. and yeah. and that's the thing i really i actually really love shane jacobson's performance in this movie yeah he I think was good yeah he yeah. brings everything out of that character and he's really beautiful and there's scenes with him and his mum uh, lynette curran and mm. and and scenes with the horse and scenes with the brother where he's like he's really lovely and mm. whereas yeah i think clayton just that that character never convinced me i just sort of felt mm. yeah you're kind of one note out of the gate, sadly. And I think, yeah, he's, jo- he's working much better as a director than he is as an actor or a writer here. Mm.
2: Mm. Kim Gingell as the stepdad, incredible. Yeah, mm. There's a scene between him right. and Shane Jacobson where it's just...
1: Yeah, he stole the film for me. It's like, like, as soon as he walked yeah, in, I was relieved. Yeah. I felt, oh, now we're in the hands of, a, of somebody who knows yeah. how to hold a scene. He was remarkable. That
2: scene between the two of them, I mm. think, is one of the best in Australian film this year, I'd say, mm. where it starts off because we this character Kim Ginjil's character is built up as being this asshole this cold manipulative asshole and he enters that scene and we're like oh we hate him but then Halfway through, they really kind of go there with their conversation, and there's so much empathy there, and you know he's a hardened man, but mm. he 's not an asshole it 's just that he's been painted that way, and ne- they 've never really had a proper conversation. these two men, um, and so that was a pretty powerful moment, I think, and that was done well mm. Um, I, I agree that it's shot very well. The, mm. uh, the colour palette's great. Um, so outside and in the shed... Uh, it's very cold. It's cool colours, yeah. a yeah, lot, like, lot of blues, a mm. lot of mm. greys, but inside there's a warmth to it because mm. that's the childhood yeah. home. Mm. Um, but at the same time, inside it's very claustrophobic. The house is like a maze because they're constantly running down the hallways mm. and, and you constantly lose where they are in relation to each other, mm. which right. was really interesting. It was Like great. a, like a
0: spatial awareness, w- mm. w- w- yeah. Do
1: you know what it reminded me of, which you might be drawing a long bow, but it reminded me of that 1948 Hitchcock film Rope. Um, ah, yeah. Because it's this sort of the same setup. I know that's got like very queer readings of that film, which don't apply here. But um, in terms of the cinematography and the setup, um, that film is about uh, two young men trying to commit the perfect mm. m- murder, um, albeit for academic reasons. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, 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 very different. Very different. <laughs> but but there's this, Hitch- this Hitchcocky and vibe in this film um, that I thought, yeah, was akin to wrote where you're in the one, they're in the one apartment in that film and the camera wonderfully like lingers between rooms and slowly shifts past characters. And I think they did a good job of that. Oh, oh Clayton did a good job of that in this film. Um, I also was getting, you know, there are some, there were some really interesting things that were never resolved for me, and that is there were some wonderful shots where the camera was like zooming in on um, old radios and into walls that seemed to be alive and fleshy, but behind them or very Lynchian, the way that mm. a, a David Lynch camera will, will zoom, in, like Blue Velvet, where it zooms into the grass and yes. then there's like this ant colony under there. So it's about sort of showing um, the rotting and the decay beneath the thin veneer or the surface, and and that was really interesting and beautifully done, but. Mm. Sort of related to nothing for me, unless I miss I, something. I kept
0: radi- waiting for the radio thing to pay off. Yeah, because well, like-
2: there's the line towards the end where that's where the money is, mm. because the, the Clayton says Clayton's character says, and I don't think this is a spoiler. no, no, no. Yeah, because no, no. the house itself has rotten and mm. it's worthless but it's the the antique radios themselves which is where the money, money is right. and that's what f- that's what the whole drama is over where that money also, is going to go in the will it's not the land it's the okay. radios mm. so i think that's why there's this constant focus on this antique Kind of bric-a-brac amongst this rotting house.
0: Mm. See again, I got a Cohen's vibe from staring at rotting wallpaper because it (laughs) felt like Barton Fink. Fink. Yeah, Yeah,
1: that's really true. And 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 stylistically. the sets are of, 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 of an era uh, which the Coens favour as well. Mm. But, you know, what's nice about it is that that sort of film does have a place in Australia and um, mm. it, it just needs its own interpretation, which I think they've attempted here. They just sort of have... There's just a few things that haven't worked for it, the script and some of the performances as we've discussed. Mm. But, um, but, yeah, I think visually it, it ticked a lot of boxes for me. Yeah.
2: They love a good drone shot. <laughs> <They didn't laughs> a lot shot. of drone shots. Yeah. I mean, there's a great one above a swamp. Yes, but I, uh, the, the, there's a bit too many drone shots. I yeah, think. A few too
0: many? Yeah. Not quite as many as Goldstone from a few years ago, which is actually one of my favourite Australian films in <laughs> yeah. the last few years, but man, does that go nuts on the God's eye uh, drone shots. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I really wanted this film to land. Yeah,
1: absolutely, yeah. Yeah. As with any, like, you know, good Australian film, we do, we want to support them. Yeah. Yeah, and it's certainly not a bad film by any stretch.
2: It's an enjoyable film. It's Mm. good. I just don't think it's innovative in terms of its style in any way. Mm. It just ticks a lot of boxes. Good nut
1: out. Innovative in terms of its funding model, we'll say, that Oh, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I mean, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. And, and good on them for, yeah. for thinking outside of the box and getting yeah. it done. I just I felt for him when I heard him say it's been 11 mm. years trying to get one project off the ground and that's the nature of the film industry and it's even tougher in Australia. Yeah. So
2: um,
1: to come up with a plan,
2: you know. And I think that's where... I I think sort of talking about sort of this Australian screen industry more broadly, I think that role of the producer there in playing the game and playing the game in a really interesting, innovative way Mm. and finding new funding streams, I think that's where this film excels.
1: I agree.
0: Three triple R.
1: Next up, we are talking about Alex True Love, another Netflix original release. Um, sorry, Alex Strange Love, I should say. Although Alex True Love isn't the, the character's name. Uh, very confusingly, um, <laughs> Alex True Love, played by Daniel uh, Doheny, is a well-rounded high school senior with a lovely girlfriend, Claire Madeline Weinstein, and a bright future ahead of him. Alex plans to achieve his last teenage milestone of losing his virginity before uh, senior year senior year ends. Rather, uh, but things get complicated when he meets Elliot Antonia. Antonio Marziale a handsome and charming gay kid from the other side of town who unwittingly sends Alex on a roller coaster journey of sexual questioning, kicking off an awkward teen adventure of love, sex and friendship set against the backdrop of a seemingly liberated yet confusing modern world. Written and directed by Craig Johnson who did The Skeleton Twins and Wilson. Alex Strangelove is produced by Ben Stiller, Nikki Weinstock and Jared Ian Goldman. Stu I've not seen Love, Simon but I know that you reviewed it on this show and the and the two have similar themes right how do you mm. how do you compare them? Well, I
2: see them both as crossover films where i um, mean, so um, love Simon was uh, by, delivered by 20th Century Fox. Um, it's the second major studio-backed kind of queer film. Uh, the first one was a terrible one called Making Love in the 80s. But this <laughs> is the first... So Love, Simon was the first major studio-backed teen film. Um, and this is uh, produced by Netflix, so another kind of film that they're wanting to cross over beyond, oh, I would say, niche queer film festival circuits. Uh, and so they're wanting it to be for um, probably like a similar audience to Queer Eye where it is for a queer audience but they also want, you know, sort of a more general audience interested in it as well. Um yeah, and I think, the, and so the cast I think is really great. I think it's a really strong cast. We, we, there's Annie Q, who's also in The Leftovers, um, who plays the best friend. Madeleine Weinstein uh, was in Beach Rats mm. from last year. Who in. Incidentally, was that was another film where she's the girlfriend of a closeted gay guy. Um, she's got her niche. Yeah. <laughs> she does it's it well. <laughs> yeah.
1: and, she and
0: needs to get a gaydar fix. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah, just <laughs> not working.
2: Um, and Antonio Maziale is in a really, really great web series called The Gay and Wondrous Life of Caleb Gallo. Oh. Yeah, really great. Oh, um, thanks for the tip. Uh, but I, I think Love, Simon does this lot better. I mm. think it's a slicker film. I, I did enjoy straight, uh, this film, uh, but it's kind of two films in one where it begins as this gross out teen comedy where the kind of the typical hijinks you'd expect, talking about losing your virginity, going to parties and licking toads, um, good times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then when towards the end, it just completely switches and becomes a melodrama and that kind of comedy gets lost. I think, um, particularly with the Madeleine Weinstein character, who's brilliant. I think she's great. She is brilliant. She's really good. Yeah, that, that kind of sadness, and I think that's a really good aspect of this film which Love Simon doesn't do as well where the heartbreak of the girlfriend character because mm. when you do have closeted gay teens it's not just them that experiences a heartbreak it's also their girlfriends who are kind of just there as props almost
1: yeah i really appreciated how fleshed out that character was yeah. and that i think the actor had a lot to do with that she's oh. she's a wonderful young actor mm. yeah she was yeah. great i
2: yeah, and this, this was billed as a sex-positive version of Love, Simon, where mm. it's going to go there and the, it's going to be sex, where Love, Simon was a lot more chaste for obvious reasons. Um, but I don't think it is. I mean, they mention all of these various sexual identities, but they're not really explored in any mm. way. It's still a very stable sexual identity that's explored. Mm. Um, in both films, we have... Just this vanilla character as the lead. We've got Simon and we have Alex. They're both upper middle class. Money's not an issue. Hmm. Um, They're both very masculine, so Mm. they're very gender normative. Um, They're very kind of easy and kind of neutral, so we can all identify with them. Mm. And in both instances, there's another queer character at their school which isn't that, where they're more femme, more out there with their queerness, and they're both kind of victims of bullying in the school. And in both, there's a scene in both films where the protagonist is like, in a weird way, like, at least I'm not that person. Mm. Mm. Um, and so, which I think is a really interesting connection. And I never really kind of saw that as a trope. But there is—I I don't see this as a very sex-positive film. Um, Wait,
1: what is that moment that you're talking about, where he says, oh, "At least I'm not that person"?
2: In um, in a love, Simon. There's a scene where I mean, in both films, there's that kind of—it's a cliche of the teen, the high school teen film, where there's the sur- the survey of the school. Yep. That's the popular girl. Yep. That's the nerd. That's that. Mm. That's the queer. That's mm. the mm. queer kid mm. that gets bullied.
1: Mm.
2: Um, and in and in both films, the protagonist deliberately distances themselves from that right um, and in Love Simon, that character has a moment towards the end mm. where there is a legitimate kind of meeting of the two and love Simon and love Simon Simon apologizes to that character where well, that doesn't happen in this film. Um, and I mean, there are a lot of teen films that do this better. There's a really great one called Another Gay Movie, which <laughs> is a gay remake of American Pie, um, which weirdly stars Graham Norton and Richard Hatch. Um, <laughs> and there's a lesbian what? and there's a lesbian version of Stifler called Muffler, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is great and that's really sex positive, like. It, kind of queer sex is explored in that film where this, it just doesn't, it just becomes really melodramatic towards the end, mm, I
1: think. Mm. I actually felt, yeah, and I felt like the film was a little bit risk adverse in terms of the sex, um, yeah. it, you know, particularly between the the two young men, um, uh, you know, for something, it sort of pa- it, it attempts to paint a really progressive picture, this film, yeah. um, where the, the teens, you know, they, they cuss like truckers, and um, you know they smoke. They buy, you know, um, psychedelic frogs to lick, and yeah. you know, um, <laughs> which is great. It that is, is great. great. I actually really, I really enjoyed that, and and actually. On that point, the special effects in this are excellent. <clears throat> they're they're un- understated and excellent. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's strange. It's sort of, but at the same time, yeah, it's quite risk averse. That there's this wonderful scene, um, between the young gay man that Alex has feelings for, where he's um, doing this performance to the B-52s, which I'll play if we have time. And, you know, that was great. That was really great and fun. And it reminded me of, um, you know, my gay friends in high school of us being in our bedrooms and doing those sorts of fun, you know, dramatic Mm. things. It felt real, you know. Mm. But that character was actually really underdeveloped, I felt. um, That that love interest character, which is a shame. No chemistry.
0: No. Yeah. See, I don't know. I felt... The f- this felt more. I don't know. I can't. I haven't seen Love Simon, so I can't. Mm. I've only seen the trailers, which looked like super vanilla to me, to the mm. point where it, I felt like a turnoff. This felt like it hit the John Hughes button more than that did. Like this mm, felt mu- like point. much more of a John Hughes film. Like mm. it, was, it was, sort of you know a, a bit raucous and a bit. And as and I kind of agree with you though, Stu. Like early on, it felt very kind of standard issue, like you know teens trying to get laid, all this sort of thing. But the scene where it turned to me was the awkward set almost sex scene between Alex and his girlfriend. Yeah. Mm. And that felt so real. Mm. I mean, like, so organic, And him trying to be sophisticated and not. And it's like, I... Yeah. I felt like this. I know people who've been like this. Yeah. And from then on, the film started to feel a lot more truthful to me in terms mm-hmm. of the relationships and as. And I actually found that turn towards melodrama really effective. Mm. And then by the end, I was totally in the bank. I, yeah. I really, I, I loved him. I loved them. I loved the whole. I loved his stupid mate Dell. I thought, I thought yeah, it was really right. funny. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It just really won me over. And. Mm and also learning that this is a semi autobiographical film for mm. for writer director Craig Johnson as well mm. um that he obviously went through a similar experience mm. yeah yeah I, I don't know i found it kind of you know like it's not going to burn the world down but i think it's 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 really i think it's yeah. kind of charming and i think it's a step in the right direction yeah
1: mm. yeah I, get, I, I agree with you i think um yeah, I think that's funny, that scene that you mentioned, Paul, of them attempting sex, um, which is this ongoing thing throughout the film. He has this pressure to have sex with this um, straight girl who's his girlfriend, obviously, and he's sort of in this, you know, sexual dilemma of what he is. And when he practises his dirty talk, it's so <laughs> jarring to the yes. film. Even even she is... And, and for it. a film that's full of, like, dirty talk, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's really jarring and that, that was quite effective, I thought, Was she's just like, oh, God, you've got to workshop these, you know. They're not... <laughs> The <laughs> dirty talk isn't working because it. And what I thought was interesting about it was it, it, it felt like it comes from a world of porn, yes. which um which would be his only sort of experience of what um, straight sex is and should be and Mm. and that's a truth for a lot of teenagers so it did feel very truthful Paul I agree with Mm. you on that point but I sort of think like it's sort of like you're saying Stu where it's like that lead character of Alex he's like he's nerdy but he's cute but he's maybe bi but he's probably maybe gay but maybe he's straight and it plays it safe in that Mm. space doesn't it and I feel like the film does too so the film like it's lead doesn't really know what it is Mm. Um, which is a shame because I do agree with you Paul it's a step in the right direction and it has lots of other wonderful things going for it visually. I think there's mm. some really uh, I- interesting animation overlay and, yeah, and that great. was like a really surprising and nice touch. It also had a very 80s vibe to me which I enjoyed. The something about the aesthetic reminded me of of a, of, a, of a fresh take on the A's although it's a contemporary piece, it's set mm. now. I don't know why I got I where I. Felt I think it's that just from. that
0: John Hughes feeling. Like uh, yeah. That yeah. You're of, right. Yeah, you've been there with that. Like the teens yeah. seem to talk, and they yeah. Yeah, they they have the same se- sexual kind of openness in terms of what they talk about and the stuff. They get, yeah, so,
1: and yeah. I think um I think Tina Fey did a lot for this genre um with Mean Girls mm-hmm. in, in in the and the language that that we use in these films now. That that was a real turning point in using language that is believable and actually used in the schoolyard. Yeah. And and he's a great director. Not fetch, though. <laughs> Never going to happen.
2: <laughs> he's a great director. So Skeleton Twins, uh, I think it was his debut film, I believe, starring Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig.
0: It's his second film. He second made a film, film. with Mark Duplass called Late Bloomers or something oh, before yeah. that. Yeah. Late Adolescence. Yeah, But mm-hmm. yeah, Skeleton Twins. Yeah. yeah, that was an Great.
2: incredible film.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, well, I should wrap it up though, but if um, yeah, if you are interested in checking this out, it is on uh, Netflix. It's a Netflix original called Alex Strangelove. The other one we discussed, which you shouldn't watch, is set it up, um, <laughs> but you should watch The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt because that's so much more funnier. <laughs> um, uh, and we also discussed Brothers Nest, which is screening at many good local independent cinemas across Australia. Should Get out there and support our local industry. Um, you've been listening to Stuart Richards, Paul Nelson, and myself, Lisa Kovacevic. It's Triple R's Plato's Cave program. If you missed anything, you can catch up uh, on the podcast version of Plato's Cave, which is edi- edited by the lovely Faith Everard.
0: This has been a podcast from 3 Triple 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.